All right, let's talk about William Blake's Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Uh, I'd like to start with a poem from Songs of Experience, The Clod and the Pebble. And let me read through the poem. Love seeketh not itself to please, nor for itself hath any care, but for another gives its ease, and builds a heaven in hell's despair. So sang a little clod of clay, trodden with the cattle's feet, but a pebble of the brook warbled out these meters meet. Love seeketh only self to please, to bind another to its delight, joys in another's loss of ease, and builds a hell in heaven's despite. Now, I think in some ways this poem does in miniature what the uh, the sequence of songs and innocence do at, at, at large. It's taking two opposing views of the same thing. In this case, it's the it's love, uh, and we've got the the clod and the the pebble. Uh, the clod, I think, fits with the idea of innocence, and the pebble with experience. Um, and they have diametrically opposed views. It's you know, love seeketh not itself to please. Love seeketh only self to please. Uh, it uh, you know it. Uh, Joy, but for another gives its ease, joys in, in another's loss of ease, uh, builds a heaven in hell's despair, or builds a hell in heaven's despite. Uh, they're just exactly the opposites. And it's interesting that the, this sets up a tension. Well, which one is right? Which What's the right view of love? And I think in, in some ways the uh, the innocent view comes first, and the experienced view comes second, and just as in this poem, the more uh, naive view, perhaps, of love is first, and then we hear the the more selfish one. So in that sense, maybe there is a direction to that. But I think generally the, the poem just allows that tension to happen. What are, here are these two different ways of thinking about love, and the the, the speakers of the two views are interesting as well. This little clod of clay is trodden with the cattle's feet. It's literally ground underfoot. Uh, the the pebble is in the, the, the brook and has this kind of warbling waters in it. Uh, so they're both small, insignificant things uh, that have this view. They're, they're similar a clod of clay, a pebble. They're not too far apart. Uh, one on and the uh, earth, one in the water. Uh, but they see things very, very differently. And I think that's what Songs of Innocence and of Experience are all about, these different kinds of, exper- of, of ways of being, ways of thinking about things. And I think especially in the way that Blake sets up so many of the poems as companion pieces, so that he'll take the same theme and describe it from the innocent view and from the experienced view. And I'd like to go through and look at several examples of that. Let's look at the introduction to Songs of Innocence. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee, on a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb, so I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again, 
So I piped, he wept to hear. Drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe, Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again, While he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write In a book that all may read. So he vanished from my sight, And I plucked a hollow reed, And I made a rural pen, And I stained the water clear, And I wrote my happy songs, Every child may joy to hear. So this is this introduction is kind of a a mythical account of these poems. Where do they come from? Um, now, obviously, it's the piping. You know, the, the the piping music. We have the valleys, the songs. It's pleasant. Uh, notice that he sees a tr- and notice that the images here recur throughout the the songs of innocence and of experience. Uh, the, the cloud comes in. The child. Uh, the lamb, uh, weeping. Uh, these are images and ideas that come up again and again. But the whole form of the poem, it feels very simple. It's got a simple uh, rhyme scheme. It's got a simple beat to it. It's got a very regular beat to it. Um, it feels like kind of sing-song. And what it's saying is also very straightforward. You know, I saw this child on a cloud, and he told me to sing a song, and I did, and I sang in a song, and he was he was so happy that he cried. Um, uh, though that is interesting, right? Because usually when people weep, it's because they're sad. This child is weeping because he's happy. Um, he wept with joy to hear um, that in itself kind of encapsulates the the paired opposites that we get in songs of innocence and of experience. But then it, it goes a transformation. He's not just singing the songs, he's writing them down. And why does he do that? So that everybody can read them. So that it's not just for this one child, for the innocent child, it's for everybody. Uh, so that every child may joy to hear not just this one. So this gives a very uh, you know, interesting view of poetic creativity. Uh, there, there's a, a sing, starts off with a single audience, starts off with voice, and it expands to a larger audience through prose. Now, think about this and contrast it with the introduction of songs of experience. Hear the voice of the bard, who present, past, and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees, calling the lapsed soul and weeping in the evening dew that might control the starry pole and fallen, fallen light renew. O earth, O earth, return, arise from out the dewy grass. Night is worn, and the morn rises from the slumbrous mass. Turn away no more, why wilt thou turn away? The starry floor, the watery shore, is given thee till the break of day. All right, now just think how radically different that is, just formally, from the introduction of Songs of Innocence. This is not a simple sing-songy rhythm. It's a very complex rhythm. The, the lines are not all the same uh, rhythmical length. Um, the, the thought and the, the syntax of it is much more complicated. The thoughts are, are much more uh, 
there, there's imagery, obviously, and symbolism in the introduction to Songs of Innocence. But this one seems like it's much denser kind of imagery, much more something you have to work and puzzle out. Uh, whereas the Songs of Innocence seem very easy and accessible, and you know exactly what they're talking about. Um, now, this poem also has an image of the poet and his mission, but it's a very different one. This is a bard, uh, not the simple piping uh, singer that we got in the first introduction, uh, who present, past, and future sees. Uh, there's this kind of visionary power that he has, and what is he doing? He's calling the lapsed soul and weeping in the evening dew. So the lapsed soul, he's not talking to a simple child, he's talking to a, a fallen world, a soul that is has lapsed, that has sinned, that is in trouble. Um, and whereas in Songs of Innocence, the introduction, it seems like a very straightforward mission. He's just doing these things and they're easy. There's a, a kind of a desperation in the introduction to Songs of Experience. You know, he says in stanza three, O earth, O earth, return, arise from out the dewy grass. He's trying to make the earth do something, you know, turn away no more. Why wilt thou turn away? Uh, it, it, this is not the kind of simple, easy mission that you got in Introduction to Songs of Innocence. This is something that is difficult and hard, and he's calling out and, and, and wondering why the world is not easily responding to him. So you get a sense just from that of the very different kinds of styles and tones that you get in these two collections. Now, let's look at another very interesting pair of poems from Innocence and Experience, uh, The Lamb and the Tiger. So, The Lamb. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead? Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright? Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice? Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. All right, now again, you get that very kind of sing-songy, almost nursery rhyme kind of quality to these songs of innocence. And it's a series of questions, right? You have the, the, the child, presumably, is speaking to the lamb, asking, who, who made you? Do, do, you, do you know? And it, what the life of the lamb is like? He, he's feeding by the stream in the meadow. Uh, he has this, you know, beautiful woolly coat that he's wearing, has a tender voice, um, all of that kind of it's very it's very pleasant almost literally pastoral scene here and then the the speaker answers the question the lamb notice never responds uh the, i'll tell you and who made thee well he is called by thy name so the lamb of god he's talking about jesus right um and so we get the, it's almost like a, a riddle poem, you know, he said, who, who made you? Well, I'll tell you. And he made you, so he made me. I'm a, you're a little lamb, I'm a little child. 
Uh, we are called by his name. Uh, it, this is almost, you know, you could imagine this in a Sunday school class. Um, uh, they're talking about the kind of uh, God made innocent children and lambs, and uh, he will bless you, and now we understand this. Uh, it's it's a very, again, innocent understanding of the the world and creation and how how things got to be the way they are. Um, and everything about the poem reinforces that kind of simple innocence that it has. Now, compare that with the poem in Songs of Experience, The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? In what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes? On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? And when thy heart began to beat, what dread hand and what dread feet? What the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Now again, we've got a very different tone and style here. Um, this is not a, a complicated rhythm. It's actually a pretty simple uh, uh, stanza form. But the imagery and the themes of this are much more complicated. First of all, the lamb is a very traditional symbol. I mean, anyone who knows anything about the Western culture uh, is probably going to know uh, the symbolism of the lamb and how that relates to Christianity. Uh, the tiger is not. Uh, you know that that's not a, a deep symbol. This is something new. This is original. This is uh, something exotic. Um, and notice that, like the lamb, this is a poem that's all about questions. But he's not asking, not talking to the tiger the way the the, the speaker in the lamb is talking to the lamb. He's talking just in general. He's asking how, who created you. Again, it's not little lamb who made thee. It's what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry. Um, and then it talks, it's not talking about the um, the physical life of the tiger. Uh, it's not talking about the way it talks about the lamb in, in the meadows and its woolly coat and all of that. It never really mentions any of the physical details of a, a tiger. It's all about how were you created and what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes. Um, you know, what the hand dare seize the fire. So you have these burning, tiger, tiger, burning bright. Why burning? Those burning eyes, uh, those images of heat. Well, of course, the tiger isn't literally on fire, right? Uh, so again, we've got a, a much more difficult image uh, and metaphor to unpack here. Uh, it's all this series of questions, you know, what what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart? Uh, what the hammer, what the chain? Uh, the idea of a furnace picks up with the idea of fire. Uh, the anvil 
It's like you're being forged. Well, that doesn't sound like, that sounds like a thing. That doesn't sound like something biological. Uh, it, it sounds like a creation, uh, a, a mechanical creation almost. Um, and look at um, the, the next, the last stanza. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? All right, think about that imagery. When the stars threw down their spears, what does that mean? Okay, the, the stars. What it doesn't. What do they represent? And if they're throwing down their spears, is are they attacking? They're throwing down their spears to try to spear somebody, or is it they're giving up? You know, you throw down your spears and surrender. Uh, and watered heaven with their tears. Now, is that something positive or negative? If they're watering, if watering heaven with their tears, well, they're crying. That's sad. But wait, isn't that like you know the rain from heaven? You know, giving life to the earth, watering heaven. But they don't water the earth; they water heaven. Um, that's not the way that you know water that rain works. Um, it's a very complicated, very confusing image. There's nothing like that in the Lamb. Everything is very simple, allegorical, straightforward. Uh, this is very complex and confusing, and you're not sure what it all means. And that's exactly the point. You're not sure what it all means. You know, did he smile his work to see? You know, was God glad he created you? So so God created the lamb, and everybody's saying, oh, yes, God is, you know, uh, Jesus was a little lamb, and he made little lambs, and isn't that sweet? Well, wait, didn't God make tigers, too, that, you know, eat people? Um it's uh, it's much harder to grapple with the idea of a, a benevolent creator when you're looking at something as awesome and scary and dangerous as a tiger. And notice that there's a change. The, the opening and uh, final stanzas are very similar, but there are a couple of, there's one very important change. In the first stanza, it says, what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? That is, who was able to, who had the power but in the last stanza, it's what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry. So it's not an idea of ability, but the, the motivation. Who would dare to do this? Why would they dare to do this? Um, so the world of the, the lamb and the tiger are very different. The world of the lamb is a simple world where children can understand uh, you know, that God is, is, has made little lambs and everything is going to work out fine. The world of the tiger is a very confusing, very grown-up, very experienced world where we don't understand what's going on. Um, the, the, the imagery and everything reflects that. Uh, so again, I think that Blake would say, it's not that one of those is the truth and the other is not. These are both aspects of the human experience. Um, and they're not just you know, confined, confined to childhood and adulthood. Uh, adults can have innocent experiences and childhood can have experience, uh, experienced experiences. Uh, but it shows that kind of contrast and a way of looking at things. Let's look at another uh set of poems that are contrasted here, Infant Joy and Infant Sorrow. 
Infant joy. I have no name. I am but two days old. What shall I call thee? I happy am. Joy is my name. Sweet joy befall thee. Pretty joy, sweet joy, but two days old. Sweet joy, I call thee. Thou dost smile, I sing the while. Sweet joy befall thee. So this is a dialogue between an infant and a parent. Right? The infant starts out, I have no name, I am but two days old. And we get a new voice that comes in, what shall I call thee? And he says, the, the infant replies, I happy am, joy is my name. So then the rest of the poem is the, the parent. Sweet joy befall thee, pretty joy, sweet joy, but two days old, sweet joy I call thee. Thou dost smile, I sing the while, sweet joy befall thee. So here we have a relationship between parent and child. The, the child comes in quite literally innocent, nameless, uh, and the parent asks, well, what do I call thee? Well, I'm, I'm happy, I'm joyful, call me joy. Oh, yes, I will call you joy, pretty joy. Uh, you know, the, the, thou dost smile, I sing the while. So the, 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 the infant is joyful, the parent is joyful for them, the, uh, the infant is smiling, the parent is singing. There's this kind of perfect, loving relationship between the two sides, right? Um, and notice that this is all kind of from a third-person perspective, that is, the kind of we're looking out, we don't get, we get kind of implicit dialogue here, but not what they're feeling on the inside. And this is the kind of thing that we people feel about uh, infants. And notice all of the repetition here. Uh, it's uh, uh, sweet joy, I am but two days old, sweet joy, but two days old, uh, what shall I call thee? Sweet joy, I call thee. Um, it, it, it's very sweet joy befall thee. Sweet joy befall thee. It's very repetitious. Again, that in, lends to the kind of sing-song, nursery rhyme quality that it all has. But let's look at infant sorrow. My mother groaned. My father wept. Into the dangerous world I leapt. Helpless, naked, piping loud, like a fiend hid in a cloud, struggling in my father's hands, striving against my swaddling bands, bound and weary, I thought it best to sulk upon my mother's breast. All right, now that's a very different image of, of infancy, of, of uh, newborn. Um, it's infant sorrow. And notice that this one is not kind of third person. This is all first person. This is all how the infant, him or herself, feels as they're experiencing the world. Um, and you just go through it. My mother groaned. My father wept. All right. Well, how does the, are those, you know, the mother is groaning because of childbirth the father is weeping, presumably for joy, but groaning and weeping, this doesn't sound like the kind of happy sing-song world of infant joy, right? And into the dangerous world I leapt. Um, it's, you know, first of all, this is a dangerous world. This is not a sweet joy befall the world. And that verb of 
leaping. Uh, so I, I took a giant leap into the world. It's very, very active and very dangerous, you know, kind of, uh, you know, look before you leap. Um, well, I just kind of leapt into this dangerous world, helpless, naked, piping loud. Now, remember in the introduction to infant uh, to uh, uh, Songs of Innocence, we had, you know, piping down the valleys loud. Well, here it's it's changed that image. It's piping but it's the way it's, it means the infant is crying, uh, piping like the father weeping, but not because the father was presumably weeping for joy. This one is piping uh, for terror. He's, he's uh, helpless, naked. And what is it like? Like a fiend hid in a cloud. All right. Now, remember Again, the introduction to Songs of Innocence. We had the child was in on the cloud. Well, this is not a kind of a pretty cherubic uh, angel child. It's like a fiend hid in a cloud. Uh, so again, this is a dangerous world. The, the infant is fiend-like and hidden. Things are clouded. It's not clear. It's a dangerous world. And struggling in my father's hands, striving against my swaddling bands. Now, if you've ever seen infants, you know that this is what they do, right? You see those they're kind of struggling, moving around and can't quite get settled. And But this is, and everybody thinks, oh, isn't that cute? But from the infant sorrow poem point of view, that it, it's not. It's a struggle. It's striving. Uh, my father's got me in his grip, and uh, the, these baby clothes are all around me. I can't get free. I'm bound, and I'm weary. I'm, I'm tied down, and I'm tired. And so what, is I, what do I do? I sulk upon my mother's breast. Um, no, this is not a kind of a, a beautiful image of, of nursing. He's, he's sulking. He's upset about it. Uh, so here again, we get a kind of a beautiful uh, mirror images of a state of being. So is infant, infant joy? Oh, how sweet. He's joyful. Uh, we'll call him joy, sweet joy befall thee. Or his infant sorrowful, he comes into the world, it's dangerous, he, he feels helpless, naked, afraid, striving, struggling. Uh, well, of course, it depends on where you're looking from. Uh, if you see the world from the infant's point of view, suddenly it might not look so, uh, so joyful and innocent and happy. Uh, and again, uh, Blake does that consistently with these poems. All right, now let's look at the two Holy Thursday poems. Uh, first of all, Holy Thursday in Songs of Innocence. "'Twas on a holy Thursday, their innocent faces clean, the children walking two and two in red and blue and green. Gray-headed beetles walked before with wands as white as snow, till into the high dome of Paul's they like Tim's waters flow. Oh, what a multitude they seemed, these flowers of London town! Seated in companies, they sit with radiance all their own. The hum of multitudes was there, but multitudes of lambs, thousands of little boys and girls, raising their innocent hands. Now like a mighty wind they raise to heaven the voice of song, or like harmonious thunderings the seat of heaven among. Beneath them sit the aged men, wise guardians of the poor, 
then cherish pity lest you drive an angel from your door. Now this is about the Holy Thursday ceremony where the, the these orphans uh, come into St. Paul's Cathedral and we get them, you know, kind of walking two and two. It sounds like uh, Noah's Ark, right? Um, and all of the, you know, all these beautiful colors. They come in the high dome of St. Paul's, and they flow like the river, like the waters of the Thames River. Now that's an interesting image. It gives you an idea of the kind of of both the power and the inevitability of this. They they kind of flow in. And, uh, you know, un- almost a kind of an unstoppable force. Uh, it says, what a multitude they seemed. So the, the, the emphasis is on the sheer number of them. And they're also the flowers of London town. These are not, you know, poor outcasts. This is the, these are the flowers. This is the best. This is the most important thing. Um, they're a multitude of lambs. Uh, raising their innocent hands. Here again, the, the lamb symbol comes up. And then in the third stanza, now like a mighty wind. So they're not just, you know, kind of innocent and powerless. They have, they're like a mighty wind in their the voice of their song and their harmonious thunderings. You don't think of thunderings as harmonious, but these are. Um, and beneath them sit the aged men, even physically, the older men are beneath them. These children are, are special. They have a connection with heaven that, that other people don't have. Uh, in fact, it, it ends with a very clear message, right? Then cherish pity, lest ye drive an angel from your door. Uh, you know, the, the, the idea that's in the Bible that you might, uh, you have to be kind to strangers because one of them might be an angel and God's testing you. That's kind of what is going on here. Uh, and the idea is that these have uh, kind of an angelic, holy power. And it's it's kind of awestruck by the orphans here and uh, seeing how important they are on Holy Thursday. Now, contrast that with the Holy Thursday poem in Songs of Experience. Is this a holy thing to see in a rich and fruitful land, babes reduced to misery, fed with cold and userous hand? Is that trembling cry a song? Can it be a song of joy? And so many children poor? It is a land of poverty. And their sun does never shine, and their fields are bleak and bare, and their ways are filled with thorns. It is eternal winter there. For where'er the sun does shine, and where'er the rain does fall, Babe can never hunger there, nor poverty the mind appall. So here we're not celebrating these uh, these infants, where these these orphans, we're appalled by them. Is this a holy thing? It says, look here in this 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 rich country. Look at all of these children reduced to misery and cold and and uh, you know trembling. Their trembling song is that supposed to be a song of joy? They're terrified. So many poor children were just living in a whole land of poverty. Um, the sun never shines for them. Everything is bleak and bare. Thorns. Winter. Uh, this is showing the kind of the the bleakness of the orphan situations. Now, this was a uh, actually a very important uh, 
uh, social issue in 19th century England and London particularly that um, uh, there were so many of these orphaned children, so many poor children, uh, you know, in workhouses and all of this. A lot of uh, Charles Dickens novels deal with that in one way or another. So this is somebody who's seeing not, you know, the think about it, the the Holy Thursday poem in Songs of Innocence is seen from the point of view, an almost heavenly point of view. But this is seen from a very earthly point of view. This, this is a poem that wants you to get upset about what's happened to these children and say, show this reflects badly on us. We should do better for these people. Uh, you know, we have to have a place where, you know, they're not, you know, the sun does shine uh, on them uh, instead of being in darkness. Um, so again, this is two completely different viewpoints on the same thing. I mean, the uh, both of these poems are prompted by the same event. They have the same trigger, but a very different reaction. The mind that see, one mind that sees them sees it one way, one mind that sees it sees it the other. And, you know, it's fascinating to me that Blake was able to see both sides of the coin there. He's able to see it both from the innocent uh, spiritual religious perspective and also from the more experienced, more cynical, uh, kind of earthly political perspective. Um, And uh, again, I don't think that Blake is saying one of those is true and one of those is false. He's saying they're both true, uh, even though they don't really fit together. Uh, and that's what makes it so interesting. Now, I'd like to talk about a couple of these poems, not in as uh, paired opposites as so many of them are, but not all of them are. And I'd like to look at a few that kind of stand independently in each collection. Uh, let's start with The Little Black Boy in Songs of Innocence. My mother bore me in the southern wild, and I am black, but oh, my soul is white. White as an angel is the English child, but I am black, as if bereaved of light. My mother taught me underneath a tree, and sitting down before the heat of day, she took me on her lap and kissed me, and pointed to the east, began to say, Look on the rising sun, there God does live, and gives his light and gives his heat away. And flowers and trees and beasts and men receive comfort in morning, joy in the noon day. And we are put on earth a little space that we may learn to bear the beams of love. And these black bodies and this sunburnt face is but a cloud and like a shady grove. For when our souls have learned the heat to bear, the cloud will vanish. We shall hear his voice saying, Come out from the grove, my love and care, and round my golden tent, like lambs, rejoice. Thus did my mother say, and kissed me, and thus I say to little English English boy, When I from black and he from white cloud free, and round the tent of God, like lambs, we joy, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear to lean in joy upon our father's knee, and then I'll stand and stroke his silver hair, and be like him, and he will then love me. 
Now, this is, I think, an unusually complex poem in the Songs of Innocence. Um, the, the title tells you that it's a, it's a different perspective. Here's a little black boy, and it's told in first person. My mother bore me in the southern wild. Um, and it starts off with this cultural uh, distinction of, of black being bad and white being good. I am black, but oh, my soul is white. And the English child is white, uh, but I am black as if bereaved of light. So he sees this, you know, oh, well, does this mean that I'm bad? Well, most of the poem is this lesson that his mother taught him. She's sitting underneath a tree and tells him about God's love. God has given us his light the way the sun is. And that we have to, like the, the love of God is like the, the beams of love that we have to learn to bear. Uh, that's an interesting image, right? Learning to bear the beams of love. And we have black bodies and a sunburned face. And he says, but that's just a cloud. For inside, you know, once we're in heaven, the cloud will vanish and we'll see him directly. So the idea is that, well, yes, there's this, in some ways, the the um, the black bodies are a response to the powerful light of God's love. Uh, That that sunburnt face has been burned by the love of God. And then she also says, and that will vanish away. That's like a cloud. That's something that's not essential. It's not real. It's not what's really under there. Um, And then the last two stanzas, the uh, little black boy goes back to his relationship with the English boy, and look at what he says. Um, uh, when I from black and he from white cloud free. He says, we're in heaven and my cloud of blackness and his cloud of whiteness are gone. Then we can both be like lambs, joying in front of God. He says, I'll shade him from the heat till he can bear to lean in joy upon our father's knee. Remember, that's what her, the mother said, that you will bear the beams of love. And so the black child is helping the white child. He says, "I will, I will kind of, you know, be be a shade for you, so you can be in my shadow until you can really bear the full light." And that suggests that the white boy isn't as ready for God's love as the black boy is. He needs the black boy's help. He he can't take the full intensity. He doesn't have the full intensity of God's love. Um, and when that happens. Uh, he can, when he can lean upon our father's knee, uh, I'll stroke his silver hair and be like him, and he will then love me. Uh, it's a very interesting poem about race relations, and I think it shows, again, it's more complex in a lot of ways than the other Songs of Innocence. But it shows that Blake was incredibly sensitive to uh, all kinds of very hot-button issues. Um and here he's suggesting the uh, the superiority of the little black boy. That, you know, the, the little white boy has to uh, uh, be shielded and uh, nurtured to grow up and be as mature as the little black boy. Um, it's a song of innocence, but I think it's got a, a real a, a bite to it that many of the songs of innocence don't have.
Now, the last poem I'd like to look at is from Songs of Experience. Let's look at the poem, London. I wander through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mine-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most, through midnight streets, I hear how the youthful harlots cursed blast the newborn infant's tear and blights with plague the marriage hearse. Now, this is a very dark vision of London, obviously. So we have him wandering through the, the streets, the Thames River, um, and the, these chartered streets, uh, they're kind of mapped out, the, the chartered Thames. And also, chartered, you know, you, you, you charter something, you, you employ it, you, you know, like a, you know, a chartered flight. Um, this is a, a kind of the economic situation that's going on in London. Things are under under control, charted, mapped out, chartered, uh, 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 bought and sold. And he sees all of these marks of weakness and woe in every face, in every cry, every infant's cry, every voice, every ban. So it's universal. There's no escaping this. Uh, the, the grown men cry and infants cry. Uh, and what all of all, what he hears in all this is what he calls the mine forged manacles. Uh, again, what what does that mean? That's manacles or chains. These are not physical chains; they're mental chains. They're mine forged. They were made in people's minds to keep people in chains. And how the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls. Now, there, he has a set of chimney sweeper poems in both Songs of Innocence and Experience. And the idea is that this is kind of, uh, you know, a child, we, we wouldn't have this with child labor laws, but they had little uh, uh, little boys and girls who would go into chimneys and sweep them out because they were small enough to get in there. And it says, that's, what does that do? It, every blackening church appalls um, the, 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 the church uh, is exploiting these children, and the hapless soldiers sigh. There's a soldier who's, you know, hapless, sighing, runs in blood down palace walls. So we have the black soot of London uh, begriming the church. We have the blood running down the palace walls. So we have church and state. Everything is corrupted by these mine-forged manacles. But most, through midnight streets, I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So this is somebody being born. The youthful harlot, the young hooker, uh, is, has this curse um, which blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. So this is, these are unwanted pregnancies. Um, that that are uh, blight, you know. There's tears blasting, blighted with plagues, and that wonderful final image, the marriage hearse. Well, a hearse is for a funeral. That's where you put a coffin. The marriage hearse. 
So these people, you know, these these children are born and the parents have to be married, but it's like a death. Um, so this is, again, an incredibly uh, grim image of London. And I, again, I think the key to this is that line, last line of stanza two about mind-forged manacles. We're so stuck in these uh, these uh, systems that we have of the, the church and the state and all of these things that we impose on ourselves that we can't get free. We're trapped in this. Um, now, of course, there are other poems like The Little Black Boy that suggest that there are spiritual ways to escape from the ugly things like racism in that case in, in our world. Uh, but the songs of experience are usually about being trapped in it. The songs of innocence are about escaping from it or seeing it in a new way. All right. Well, now for next time, we're going to go on to uh, William Wordsworth. Uh, and several things I'd like you to read. The first is a short section from his preface to the Lyrical Ballads. Lyrical Ballads was a, a book of poems that Wordsworth and uh, Coleridge published together. They both put in poems in there, and it was it's really often seen as the beginning of the Romantic period in poetry. And his preface to it is, a, is the kind of theoretical manifesto of the Romantic poets. But I'd really like you to only read just one section of it. Uh, it's the very last section, and the, the title they give it in uh, the Norton Anthology is Emotion Recollected in Tranquility. And I'd like you to read that and think about what the vision of poetry that Wordsworth has is. What does he think poetry does, and how does it accomplish it? Uh, then I'd like you to read uh, th uh, lines... Uh, it's, it's, the, it's usually just called Tintern Abbey. The full title of the poem is Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey on Revisiting the Banks of the Wye During a Tour, July 13th, 1798. So you can see why we kind of shortened that to Tintern Abbey. Um, but this is a, a very interesting poem. I want you to think about how the poem is dealing with time. Uh, what has happened? Is, is, where is Wordsworth in time here? He's revisiting a place. He's remembering a place. He's thinking about the future. What is this moment? Why is this moment so important to him? Why is this place so important to him? What gives it significance? And how does he express that in the poem? And then I'd also like you to read a set of five poems that are often called the, the Lucy poems. They're about the uh, the speaker's relationship with a woman named Lucy. Uh, they are strange fits of passion have I known. She dwelt among untrodden ways. Three years she grew. A slumber did my spirit seal. And I have traveled among unknown men. And as you're reading these poems, think about what are the the common themes among them and how the, the these poems manifest the things that Wordsworth talked about in his preface to Lyrical Ballads. So, we'll be talking about uh, Wordsworth next time. Uh, thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you then. <laughs>